I want to talk today about planning for translational research in genomics. And I guess the point at which I'm starting from here, and I hope that those of you who are scientists among us will, will agree with this, is that the ultimate purpose of biomedical research is to benefit patients. And in some cases, the uh, benefit to patients might be a lot further away than others. So if you're doing clinical research, the benefit to patients is much more obvious and tangible. If you're doing basic science research, uh, it might be much more unclear what the ultimate benefit to patients is. You're looking for a better understanding of physiology at that point. But I would suggest that even in that case, um, at some point, there may be some benefit to patients. So given this background, what I want to focus on today is what you can or should do at an early stage in planning a research project to ensure that translation can occur downstream. So perhaps it's things to do or to avoid doing in order to make sure that translation can happen. So I'm going to cover a number of things. Firstly, I want to consider what translational research is and then what it is in the context of genomics. Secondly, the role of commercialization in biomedical research and genomics, although that's a huge topic that I'm only going to touch on. Intellectual property rights, collaboration agreements, the uh, ever-present subject of consent, and finally, I'll finish with a couple of recommendations. So what is translational research? It's a phrase that's ever-present in um, biomedical research and biomedical research funding at present. And essentially, it's talking about taking research from the laboratory into the clinic, from the bench to the bedside. There's been a huge recent focus on translational research in funding. So government funders and charitable funders have dedicated funding streams to translational research. And even in their non-translational research funding streams, they require some discussion often of what the potential translational outcomes are. So this is an important topic for people who work in science at the moment. In relation to genomics, I'd suggest that there are probably three areas in which translational outcomes could be grouped. So the first is a better understanding of physiology and disease. And this is where most genomics translational outcomes are occurring at the moment, if they even go that far, perhaps. But essentially what I'm talking about here is a, you might, a doctor might be able to change their management or treatment of a disease or better understand the way a disease is working in their patients. Second area is diagnostic tools. So your traditional genetic tests, new type of genetic tests for multifactorial disorders, and particularly pharmacogenetic tests. And an example of that might be something like pharmacogenetic testing uh, in relation to a back of it in HIV. And the final area is therapeutics. Uh, this is still very much early stage in genomics research, but there is great hope that therapeutics may be developed out of genomics research. And an early example is the development of PARP inhibitors in relation to BRCA1 and 2 breast cancer. So keeping in mind those potential outcomes, translational outcomes, I want to move to considering what the role of commercialization is. And at least in academia, there's often a fear or a concern that commercialization can be very negative in relation to biomedical research. And I don't particularly want to enter into that debate except to say that I think we need to recognise commercialisation is a reality in the translation of biomedical innovations into practice and that commercial parties do play an important role in the development of biomedical innovations. Um, this is largely because the process 
of doing the research and development um, to get something into clinical practice is very expensive, it's very difficult, and universities traditionally aren't involved in all of that. They're involved in the early stages of the process, but not traditionally in the later stages. Industry, on the other hand, has the resources and the expertise in order to be involved in that. I would suggest, however, that keeping in mind those three translational outcomes, the relative importance of the role of industry may differ. So if you're talking about understand, changing understandings of how disease operates, then it's much less important that industry be involved in that. University researchers may, in fact, be very good at developing that research and translating it into practice, disseminating it to doctors, convincing them to change their practice. If, on the other hand, you're talking about a therapeutic, it's likely that it will be necessary for industry to be involved. So if you talk about commercialisation, you tend necessarily to talk about intellectual property rights. They're very important for commercialisation, and commercial parties do rely on IP to protect their investment. So what is intellectual property? Well, these things, patents, trademarks, copyright and related rights, design rights and confidential information, are the basic intellectual property rights. The two that are most relevant for the purposes of what we're talking about today are patents and copyright and related rights, and those are the two I want to focus on. Intellectual property is a personal property right um, that it protects the output of intellectual endeavour. It can be bought and sold, so you can own IP like you might own your car. It's also a national right, and it exists independently in different countries. So if you have a patent, you will have a patent in Great Britain, you'll have a separate patent in France, you'll have a separate patent in Germany, Australia, and so on and so forth. And the question is, well, what does it allow you to do? It's a right which allows you to prevent other people from doing something without your consent, if you're the IP owner. It doesn't actually allow you to do anything yourself. It allows you to stop other people doing something. So in that sense, it's quite a negative right. So, patents. Patents have traditionally been granted for mechanical-type inventions, and a mousetrap is an example. But they're also relevant in relation to biotechnology, biomedical research. And if you think about what you're doing in the lab, you can think about whether you could patent what you're doing. Uh, patents cover products, and they also cover processes. Um, so you could patent a new drug, for example, or you could patent a new method of doing something. So you could patent a new method of sterilising surgical instruments, for example. But there are a number of requirements that you need to satisfy in order to show that what you're doing is patentable. The first of these is that it has to be new. It has to be novel. And that means not previously made available to the public anywhere in the world prior to the date of filing. And this includes disclosures by you and your research group, not just by other people also needs to be inventive, and that means it wasn't obvious to do what this invention does um, in relation to the, what's been done before. It needs to be industrially applicable, so made or used in any kind of industry. This is construed very broadly, but interestingly in relation to genetics, the requirement has become quite important. So as you might be aware, there are a number of patents applied for over gene sequences for a gene sequence as a product in the early stages of the Human Genome Project and so on. In some cases, perhaps not all, but at least in some, the patent applicant had no very clear idea of what this particular gene and the associated protein did. And in quite a recent case, the Court of Appeal has, has held in the UK that you can't have a patent where you have no good idea of what your gene does, that speculative applications or attempts to reserve a field of research 
in order to allow you to do further research which might perhaps come up with a practical application. In such a situation, the patent isn't allowed because it's not industrially applicable. You also need to show that your patent is sufficient and what this means is that it's sufficiently described in order to enable someone else to carry out your invention in the future. One of the purposes of patents is to teach the public, to provide information to the public and on the basis of this you need to actually show the public how to carry out your invention once your monopoly has ended. And then the final requirement that I wanted to cover is um, this requirement that you have to patent an invention, not a discovery. But what the Act says is that you can't patent a discovery as such. So if you discover the association between a disease and a gene, then that information itself is not patentable. If, however, you can come up with a useful application of that discovery, then you can patent that useful technical application. So what that means is that if you can patent a means of diagnosing the disease that you've discovered the association in relation to, then you can have a patent on that method. Okay, so that's a brief run-through of patents. What I then wanted to talk about briefly is uh, the other rights that I said were relevant, so copyright. In the sorts of research you do, you could have copyright in relation to software, in images, or in some databases. Now, copyright is very broad-ranging protection. You've probably heard about it in relation to things like music, but it's also relevant in relation to these sorts of works. It arises automatically on creation and fixation of the work, and it means that you can prevent others from copying your work. And unlike patents, it has a very long duration. It lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years. Patents, on the other hand, last for 20 years. The other difference I should highlight is that you need to apply for a patent. Copyright arises automatically. And the other right um, is the database right, which is a right which was created under European law. It's not something that's married in other jurisdictions, but it exists here, so it might be useful. A database right relates to a collection of independent work, data or other material arranged in a systematic or methodical way and individually accessible by electronic or other means. And it exists provided that there has been a substantial investment of financial, human or technical resources in obtaining, verifying or presenting the material constituting the database. So if you put together a database of epidemiological information in relation to your particular study, that could perhaps be protected by a database right. Again, like copyright, these rights arise automatically and they give the owner the right to prevent anyone from extracting or reutilising all or a substantial part of the contents of the database. I just, before I went on, wanted to discuss um, a couple of IP myths. First of these is one that intellectual property rights are sometimes seen as in some way intrinsically wrong or intrinsically bad. And the other one, and perhaps held by different people, is that intellectual property will lead you to make your millions. Neither of these is entirely true or entirely false, perhaps. What I want to suggest, rather, is that patents are just tools, and intellectual property rights are tools. They can be used for lots of different purposes. Pharmaceutical companies indeed can use them to maintain their monopoly, keep competitors out of the market, so on and so forth. But funders can also use them in order to make sure that innovations are available in the developing world. So they can be used in many different ways. They're also very useful in order to obtain funding, to go to a um, venture capitalist or to engage in negotiations with a pharmaceutical company. 
So the question is, of course, whether or not you want to patent your work. That's not necessarily an easy decision to make, but there are lots of people you can talk to about this. ISIS Innovations, University R&D, other people you need to speak to about these sorts of things. One issue that scientists often raise is that patents prevent publication, and obviously academics are concerned about the potential money they might make from a patent, but they're also very concerned about their academic reputation, which depends on publication. As I said earlier, you cannot publish your work before applying for a patent. There are some exceptions, but that's the general rule. And this means presentations at conferences, paper publications, publication to anybody outside of confidential setting. However, patent applications can be done quickly and they don't need to delay publication unduly. It's important if you think you've got a patentable application that you speak to ISIS Innovations or your lawyer, depending on who that might be, about it before you publish. Uh, it's also, I suppose, relevant to say that you can file an initial patent application. That doesn't mean you're then locked in for 20 years. You can make a decision at any time that your patent isn't commercially worthwhile and to um, draw the application or stop paying the fees. So that's intellectual property. I wanted to move on now to the question of collaboration agreements. Uh, as you're all aware, genomics research projects are often very large projects. They involve many different parties, often in many different institutions, and frequently in many different countries. This is practically very complicated, but it's also legally quite complicated. These sorts of arrangements often arise out of informal types of uh, relationships, um, but once you get funding for a project, you will need to put in place a formal set of contracts, formal collaboration agreements. These agreements will articulate the nature and aims of the project, the roles and responsibilities of the parties. They'll also cover things like material transfers, confidentiality. Importantly, they'll also cover intellectual property and the ownership of intellectual property. It may be worthwhile pointing out that merely saying joint ownership or there will be joint ownership of the IP may not be legally as clear as what the parties think it is. So it's important in these agreements to be very clear and understand what the legal relationships are. Now, these agreements are not uh, particularly easy to negotiate, but they are essential. And a good agreement will accommodate the current organisation of the research, but will also be flexible enough to provide mechanisms to allow for future possibilities. There are some standard agreements, such as the Lambert Agreements, which are available online, which provide a starting point, but it is important to tailor agreements um, to the specifics of each project. So it's understandable that you might be a little sceptical. I'm a lawyer. I'm standing here telling you that you need to consult lawyers and that it's very, very important that these agreements be in place. But I'd suggest that there are two particular areas that it's beneficial um, to, for you to have these agreements in place. The first is that... When you negotiate these agreements, you fully consider potentially problematic areas. And this should allow you to recognise and avoid potential pitfalls. So hopefully the process of negotiating agreements will mean that you won't need them, in a sense. The second is that if you do have a problem, um, the agreement will provide, or should provide, the basis and mechanisms for resolving a dispute. Um, which basically means that as a scientist you can get on and do your science and not worry about these sorts of issues. And you want to make sure you don't end up here at the Royal Courts of Justice, which I suggest you may do if you don't have a good agreement. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and typically no party to litigation wins, uh, except for the lawyers.
Okay, the final area I wanted to talk about is this area of consent, which comes up in, I think it's come up in every one of our seminars. So, as you're all aware, participants in research are often motivated by the thought of the benefits that come from it. They are not always concerned with their individual benefits, but they're often concerned with the benefits that, that they hope will accrue for future generations. At the same time, participants often have reservations about commercial involvement in research. But there are quite a wide range of views. So you can have those who question all commercial involvement and might be concerned about a company profiting from what they see as their information. You might have groups, and GeneWatch is one, that is concerned about industry involvement skewing the research agenda towards uh, more profitable areas of research. And then on the other hand, there are others, and they're often disease patient groups and groups such as the genetic interest group which see commercial involvement in research as a very positive thing and this is at least partly because they think that commercial involvement means that there's more likely to be some sort of tangible translational outcome. So given this background it seems fairly clear that informing participants is quite important and there is research which indicates that participants want to know about commercial involvement in research. In this sense context is quite important if you have a commercial partner in the research, you might have a commercial logo on the consent form, you might have the AstraZeneca, for example, banner in, in when they go and give their sample or whatever, then participants have a sense that there's commercial involvement. If, on the other hand, they're recruited through the NHS or through their doctor or they're involved with a university project, then it's likely that participants will tend to think of that research as purely uh, non-commercial. So, bearing in mind this context as a bit of background, I want to look at a few consent forms. And there's huge variations in what participants are told. So, the first example um, is this one here. And as you'll see, there's no reference to commercialisation. And that's just a sample. The entire consent form makes no reference to commercialisation. The next one makes it very clear that there's a commercial partner in this research and that patients, so participants should know that there's a commercial partner and they've also been explicitly told that there may be patenting and they will not have any financial benefit. And then the final consent form is this one. And as you'll see, the final sentence of this paragraph says that the information and blood samples collected will not be used for any commercial purposes. Now, it's entirely possible but when that consent form was drafted, and it may still be the case that there is no commercial involvement in that research. However, questions arise if there's a useful discovery and there's intention to develop that into a translational outcome. What, what would a commercial party make of this particular consent form? So I guess you think, well, what could be the problem? I don't think that it's so much a concern that you'd be sued by a disgruntled participant. It's possible, but whether or not they'd be able to make a case, whether it's likely, whether they'd ever get much in the way of damages, I don't think that's your main concern. I think it's more likely that uh, the disgruntled participant might go to the Daily Mail. And in such a situation, any publicity is not good publicity. Publicity in these sorts of cases can lead to loss of public trust, reputational harm. And for universities and hospitals, these sorts of things are important, particularly in relation to future recruitment. But even so, I don't think that's your main concern. I think the main reason why we should avoid these sorts of statements is because that they, they could potentially block, block translation. 
commercial parties are extremely risk-averse. And I would suggest that the risk is any commercial party interested in partnering with this sort of study may well walk away on seeing this sort of thing, particularly if they can walk down the street to your competitor, which doesn't have this um, phrase in the consent form. So unless you have it there for a particularly good reason and you really genuinely don't want any commercial involvement at any point, I would suggest that these sorts of phrases probably shouldn't go in uh, consent form. To conclude, I'd make two brief recommendations. Unsurprisingly, the first of these is to make sure that appropriate and effective agreements are in place before the commencement of research. And secondly, to address research participant concerns about commercialisation and to ensure that research participants are fully informed through informed consent procedures about potential commercial outcomes of research.